0: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair and many, many more. Join me on Season 3 of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple
2: Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.
1: Hi everyone, it's Sophia and welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is a world-renowned behavioral scientist. She has worked everywhere from Google to the Obama administration. She was actually the first behavioral science advisor to the United Nations and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford University. She's been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, Scientific American, Freakonomics. The list truly goes on and on, and by now I'm sure you all know that I was so geeked To have this conversation with her today, I had 1 million questions, her brain is so fascinating, and I cannot wait to introduce you all to the phenomenal Dr. Maya Shunker. In addition to using behavioral science to advise presidents and the biggest companies on earth, Dr. Shunker has also started her own podcast, which she hosts and produces, called A Slight Change of Plans. The show puts the spotlight on guests from all walks of life who have experienced extraordinary circumstances and takes a deeper look at how that changed the course of their lives. And that's a topic Maya knows plenty about from her own life experience, as we will hear for ourselves. Let's get to talking. Maya, it's so nice to have you on the show today. And before I ask you one million questions about your fascinating work, I actually always like to go backwards because I I sit across from you today, you know, fascinated by your career and wanting to talk about behavioral science and, and how the brain works. And I wonder how you got to be an expert on the brain. You know, were, were you fascinated by science as a kid? Was was eight- or nine-year-old Maya really into what made people tick, or were you on a whole other path?
0: I was on a—well, first of all, it's great to be here, Sophia, and it's so lovely to meet you. Um, a fan of your show. Thank you. uh, So, yeah, I mean, if you had asked nine-year-old Maya about whether she was eventually going to become a scientist, she would have been like, there's no way that's not <laughs> even possible. Um, when I was a kid, my true passion was playing the violin. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was six years old, my mom went up to her attic and brought down my grandmother's violin that she had brought with her all the way from India. And she tells me that when she opened up the case, my eyes just lit up. Like, I, I oh. it was an instant connection that I felt with the instrument. And things really picked up for me when I was nine because um, I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music in New York and was very fortunately accepted. And that began weekly trips from Connecticut to New York, um, every Saturday for about 10 hours of classes. And then when I was a teenager, things picked up even more when Itzhak Perlman asked me to be his private violin student. And he was my role model. I mean, in my mind, the best violinist of our time. And as you can imagine, I felt very intimidated in the Juilliard climate, right? It's very easy to feel imposter syndrome and and like you don't really have what it takes. But when Perlman gave me his vote of confidence, I felt like, oh, maybe I, maybe I do have what it takes, maybe I could actually go pro. Wow. And so I really doubled down on my desire to be a professional at that point. And every decision I made from that point on was, was in pursuit of wanting to become a concert violinist. But then when I was 15, I had a sudden hand injury that derailed all of my ambitions to become a violinist. And doctors basically told me that I could never play the violin again. So that, that changed my life in a pretty significant way.
1: Wow. And I imagine, especially when you're so dedicated to something as a young person, I, I can't help but think about cognitive development and understanding that, you know, we don't have fully formed brains until we're 26. Also, I think about all the dumb shit that I did in my early (laughs) twenties and I'm, and I just look around and I go, who lets us do anything until we have a full brain? But I I think about <laughs> you as a young child, I mean, from six to 15, loving this instrument and and developing the plan of your life with this instrument mm-hmm. involved. I imagine that that must have been quite traumatic to be told, you know, the trajectory of your life has just changed.
0: Absolutely. And I think as a child, you know, you don't always ask these big existential questions about who you are and Mm. what you bring to this world until sometimes you lose something. And it inspires Mm. you to start to ask these questions like, who am I, and especially who am I without the violin, right? It's been such a foundational part of my identity for so long. Mm. Um, There's this insight in cognitive science called identity foreclosure, and it refers to the idea that we tend to, especially in adolescence, but it can continue through adulthood, we tend to attach ourselves quite quickly to a very specific identity, Mm. and we can cling to that identity and feel very fixed in that identity in ways that prevent us from exploring other avenues in life, other ways of being or living or other pursuits that we have. And I definitely fell prey to identity foreclosure. You know, I, I thought I'm first and foremost a violinist. Um, If people ask me who I was as a kid, it was like I was first a violinist and then secondly, I was Maya, you know. Mm. Um, And so I I think having to confront the fact that I couldn't play at such an early age um, and that I was forced to pivot helped challenge this foreclosure within myself and Mm. forced me to see my identity as far more malleable than I had and I think it's served me well. I think it's helped me navigate the many twists and turns that have come in my life ever since mm. in ways that I might not have, had I not been, had this change not been forced upon me at such a young age.
1: That's fascinating. I think about the um, the importance of being able to pivot, of being able to react in real time. And and although not in a great circumstance, you learning that as a kid, I imagine Really changed your life in some incredible ways. There are two details before we keep pulling on that thread that I would love to ask about just for Mm -hmm. some of the folks listening at home. Because I imagine, you know, and we've all had the moment where someone says something that we're supposed to know. We go, mm hmm, yep. (laughs) And I know there's someone sitting at home going, who's Itzhak Perlman? And if, and I am curious if if you, if you talk about it, I, I don't know if you do, but, but what did happen? to your hand. I, I'm fascinated for whatever reason I'm studying Mm -hmm. for this medical show. So the architecture of the hands and feet to me, I just think is the most sort of sublime and complex thing in the human body. And so I, I don't know, there's something, I'm very curious as to, you know, in these small spaces with all these little bones, what, Mm -hmm. what happens and, and how a doctor could determine what to your, to your point, a a career ending injury is. So Mm -hmm. If, if you could answer those two questions yeah, for people, of course, I know yeah. they're
0: wondering. <laughs> yeah, I know. For those who are not steeped in the classical music world, <laughs> right. especially the violin world, um, you might not know, but Itzhak Perlman is, yeah, widely considered the greatest violinist of our time. Um, mm. Certainly as a little kid, he was, I mean, he was so, his abilities were so out of reach, right? It's like, mm. I-, I remember when I was really young, my mom brought me to one of his concerts and we found a way to go backstage. And I remember meeting him in person and just thinking it was the coolest thing that had happened to me in my life, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a aspiring um, young singer-songwriter meeting Taylor Swift backstage and being like, oh, wow, uh, I could never dream of ever mm-hmm. getting to interact with this person in the future, but I so admire what they do. So mm-hmm. the fact that he took me on as a student, you know, I mentioned that vote of confidence, but more importantly, you know, the, this man who is an absolute expert as at his craft was now mm-hmm. teaching me um so many valuable lessons about how to play the violin well um so i i cherish still to this day the opportunity to learn from from one of the greatest yeah. um in terms of my hand i i tore tendons in my hand and you know for something like the violin which requires so much agility mm-hmm. that can be a career ender right mm. and yeah, I guess you don't appreciate the, the dexterity again until until you lose it. And I ended up having surgeries and a lot of scar tissue form and, and ultimately, mm. yeah, that ended my career. Mm. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, it's totally mm. fine now. I mean, <laughs> when I look back now, I'm like, oh, you know, it was everything to me then, but mm-hmm. obviously in anyone's life, right, when, they're, when they face a change and they move on, I think, you know, one lesson I learned was really digging into what it was about the violin that I loved and trying to figure out if I could find that in other areas. I think we mm-hmm. tend as humans to attach ourselves to specific things, to specific things that we do. Mm-hmm. And it can be much more, uh, it can be much safer and more durable to attach ourselves to the features of a pursuit that really make us tick. And so if you'd asked me as a kid, you know, what do you love about the violin? I would say, I love the way it sounds. I love the way that it feels. I love the notes that I can produce on this instrument. But actually, I think the real thing that got me so excited about playing the violin is that I could forge a deep emotional connection with people that I'd never met before within moments of playing a piece. So, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know, as a young kid, you go on stage and there's all these people in the audience that are total strangers to you. You're a total stranger to them. But within moments, you're making them feel something. Mm -hmm. And that's an incredible feeling to get people to feel things they never felt before or to bond in this really deep emotional way very quickly. And I think what I've learned in hindsight is that that's actually the thing that I found so intoxicating about playing the violin. It was the Mm -hmm. ability to connect with people in this deep way. And I feel like in many ways, my studying the human mind is another way of fulfilling this passion of wanting to understand how it is that people feel things or think things or develop their attitudes or beliefs about the world. And in many ways, my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, taps into my desire to get to really unlock people and uh, discover together how it is that they've navigated these big changes in their lives. And I know, Sophia, you also interviewed Hillary Clinton for your show, but it's wonderful to be able to go into a room with her and say, you know, hi, Hillary, like apropos of nothing, what was the hardest moment you've ever had in your life? Or what's your biggest insecurity? Or how did you navigate this momentous moment? And so you can kind of cut through all the pleasantries and you have license to really dig deep with a person. And mm-hmm. so I've loved creating a slight change of plans because I think in many ways I'm tapping into that same love and passion that I had with the violin so many years ago.
1: Yeah. And it strikes me that the thing you're talking about is a safe container or a welcoming container for empathy and experience. That's the way I think about storytelling. and mm-hmm. And what I do you know, whether it's on this podcast, whether it's in film and television. Also, uh, I don't feel like I can do to the best of my ability without music. Mm. They're so intrinsically connected. The music that I source and then playlist for characters, the music that goes with a great scene when it's finally being edited. And I think that there is something about the experiences, you know, that you and I have shared as performers that really can allow people to all meet somewhere. And sometimes that's people who otherwise would be, to use your earlier term, in, in whatever their silo of their own identity foreclosure might be. And people can share an experience and suddenly have empathy for someone who their mm-hmm. their particular identity may have told them to discount before, which I find really powerful. And, and it does feel like the through line from making art uh, to studying the human mind. And and in that leap that you talk about or, or that sort of connected arc, what was the moment when you had the light bulb When when something pointed you in a direction of the human mind, of behavioral science?
0: Yeah, I mean, first I will say that you're absolutely right. I think that one thing that has been really empowering for me to learn as a cognitive scientist and has helped me go through hard times is just how much of our psychology we share with one another, Mm -hmm. right? We can have such different life experiences, but at the end of the day, all of our minds in some foundational way are wired very similarly, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to recognize that because we can feel a lot more camaraderie with one another than we otherwise might. Um, So I've I've always thought to myself, like, studying the mind is the greatest empathy builder. (laughs) It gives you so much compassion for other people's views and mindsets. And when you understand why people think the way they do, then in turn, you can feel a lot of compassion and empathy for their views. So that's the first thing. Um, In terms of my light bulb moment, so the summer before college, um, I was supposed to be in China touring with my violin classmates, um, but instead I was at home helping my parents clean their basement. So... Awesome summer, <laughs> equally cool as the counterfactual world. And I just helped
1: my mom <laughs> clean her house out last week, like four hours a day. So I, 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 I respect the choice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Very kind of you to do that. I'm sure your mom really appreciated it. And so I, I stumbled upon um, one of my sister's old course books from college. And it was about the science of how the mind works. In particular, it was about our ability to comprehend and learn language. And this was something that I'd always taken for granted, my ability to speak and comprehend language. And what this book taught me is that when you pull the curtain back and you realize how incredibly sophisticated the cognitive, mach- cognitive machinery is that gives rise to language, mm. you really end up in awe of the human mind. Like I, thi- I-, I think so many of us are so hard on ourselves every day, right? We're like, oh, I don't like this part of myself. I don't like this part of myself. And when you take a step back and you look at all that the mind is capable of, you will feel like you're crushing it every freaking day. <laughs> You'll feel like this is, the human experience is incredible. I am legitimately crushing it. Yeah. And so I, I just remember being in total awe of this organ and feeling like, feeling infinite wonder about how it is that we can produce language. Um, but then also it led me to ask these other questions like, Well, if that's what's involved in speaking or producing language, what's involved in doing high level mathematics or complex decision making or engaging Mm -hmm. in productive discourse with another human being or falling in love. Like it just it opened up within me a very, very deep curiosity for how it is that we go through this world and and navigate it.
1: Mm, I love that. I love it. And it's making me think, I don't know if you've had time to read this book as you know you're doing major scientific research of your own, but, uh, Bill Bryson, you know, who wrote a history of everything and, uh, he's such an incredible author. And he, he wrote this book called the body, which was the first thing I jumped into prepping Mm. for, um, my, my medical job. And one of the things that fascinated me most was the actual scientific disproving of these very tribal identities we carry. There's a moment where he talks about melanin and explains how it works and how humans evolved in different climates to have different amounts of it in their skin
2: mm. and
1: and he's sitting in a lab with a doctor who excises a postage stamp size four layers deep piece of human skin from a cadaver while he's in this lab explaining you know this woman is explaining to him how it works and she holds it up to the light and he's so shocked he says it's translucent and she says yeah that's all that race is and we have these fixed identities and you see how you know legacies of colonization and supremacy have been so harmful to humans and we really are truly scientifically underneath it all all the same mm-hmm. and it's it's fascinating to me how we can carry these beliefs we can carry these behaviors the the tendency to other anyone is behavioral. Mm
2: -hmm. It's not
1: based in reality. And something that always strikes me as interesting, you know, being a a daughter of immigrants who have very particular food traditions is the ways we tend to really get people involved in each other um, and in each other's worlds, families, lives, cultures can often first be through food. Mm -hmm. And I'm often struck by this curiosity. I, I think about this question a lot. How could we get people to love each other the way we love each other's food? Mm-hmm. You know, what what is that behavioral leap? Mm-hmm. Um, what identities do we have to kind of do away with? And how do we understand why we form them in the first place?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting that you bring this up because two days from now, I'm going to be interviewing Padma Lakshmi for season two of A Slight mm. Change of Plans. And she built this incredible show called Taste of the Nation. And yes. it's It's really an expedition into all of the immigrant cultures that make up America and Mm -hmm. that food can be this extraordinary vehicle to bring people together. Mm -hmm. I think she says something like, you just can't hate a a plate of food. You just can't. It's impossible. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it can can really be this vehicle for connecting humans across divides. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But to your point, Sophia, about how our tribal identities can inform the way that we see the world and can breed division, there is some really compelling research called cultural cognition. It refers to the fact that we don't just develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world based on facts. Mm. Um, We like to think, oh, when someone doesn't agree with us on what we believe are empirical matters, like whether climate change is real or whether the coronavirus is real um, or whether gun control reform can reduce gun deaths, we like to think, let's just Let's just show them the facts. Let's just show them more information. If you throw enough information their way, they'll change their minds. But research shows that's missing a huge piece of the puzzle, which is that a lot of what contributes to our attitude and belief formation is our group membership. It's the the tribal relations that we have and the values that that tribe holds, right? Mm. And so what that means in practice is that when we engage in certain behaviors, ones that might seem fairly trivial to other people, like whether or not to wear a mask. you know, Sometimes I just get so exasperated. I'm like, oh my God, it's just a damn piece of cloth. Mm -hmm. Just wear it, it'll keep you safe, I promise. But then you realize that for some folks, wearing a mask can actually threaten their sense of belonging to a broader group that really matters to them and informs their sense of self. Mm -hmm. And when you understand that, you can try to use the right tools or tactics to engage with folks in really productive ways um, Mm -hmm. that actually get them to change their minds about things. And it reminds me of a conversation that I had for a slight change of plans um, with a a man named Daryl Davis, who's a black jazz musician, who ends up going on to inspire hundreds of people to leave white supremacy groups. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't do it by throwing facts their way. He engages in a lot of techniques that have been corroborated by the science, like showing genuine curiosity for why it is that someone might have arrived at their views in the first place, asking them what evidence might change their mind. Um, And I love that question because it presupposes that they ought to change their mind in the face of new evidence, which is something we can't always take for granted. Mm. You want to increase your question-to-statement ratio. Um, So rather than talking at the person, you're really talking with the person. And importantly, you want to make sure that you talk in ways that allow them to not feel like their entire belief system is being threatened, mm-hmm. because that can just lead them to, sh- to create a wall, right, to like shut down the conversation entirely,
2: mm-hmm. but to
0: engage with them in a way that allows them to see, in this case, just how vile their belief system is, but in ways that make them feel like they can be redeemable, right? Mm-hmm. That you've identified at least a semblance of humanity um, such that they can in fact change their minds and change their ways. And what Daryl Revealed through his life experiences, you know, he was able to get people to not just lead the clan, but actually shut down whole chapters because wow. they just didn't believe in the ideology at all. And it's an extraordinary story. It's one that left me with some conflict internally, because I was thinking to myself, you know, Daryl's so admirable, but at the same time, why is the burden falling on people of color to have to convince people mm-hmm. who have these reprehensible views to change their minds? Mm-hmm. So it left me with a lot of open questions. And it's, I'm still, I still feel lots of conflict thinking about that episode, but it it can definitely get people thinking differently about what's involved in mindset change.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I think that is uh, such a conundrum that I struggle with because if I think about gender issues, for example, Mm. I know that a group of men sitting around talking about what happens to women is not going to be as effective as a few of us educating a group of men on our reality. And yet it means that the, the burden of the emotional labor always falls on the oppressed group. Mm. And, and then I, the way that I sort of was able to rationalize some of that for myself is I thought about, uh, back in the day when I was a camp counselor and I thought, oh, well I was tasked with and trusted with, by the way, being responsible for other people's children for weeks on end Mm. because I had more information than those children about responsible behavior in the wild how to take care of a natural ecosystem, uh, how to have a buddy system, you know, with your bunk mates. And I thought, oh, right. I, I was their teacher. I was their steward in nature. And I think it, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I have found solace in, uh, decentralized power structures that centralize stewardship Mm. because it allows us to, you know, come in, participate educate, teach, uh, be activists, and then take moments of rest. I, I can't imagine being the person who had to do all the work all the time. I've tried that before and experienced burnout. Um, but it, it it is, it's a really complex thing because you, you think about what would have happened if Daryl hadn't done that work, if he hadn't followed his feeling of calling, but then is it really his responsibility? It's really hard.
0: Yeah, there's a deep tension there. I think one thing that also reassures me about his story is that sometimes the most effective messengers of a new way of thinking are converts, are people who mm. went through a journey of mm-hmm. going from, say, white supremacist to not. Yeah. And what we saw with Daryl's story is that when he would convince one person, that person would mm-hmm. in turn convince lots of people within their network. You know, the Department of Homeland Security uses this technique all the time, which is when they're trying to engage in anti extremist reform. They use people who were previously part of extremist yes. groups to be those messengers. Because mm-hmm. basically, what happens is you can, the former extremists can talk with the current extremists and say, hey, look, we used to share the same values. I started off in the same place that you're in today. Mm-hmm. Let me walk you through my journey of going from point A to point B to essentially help you see the light and see that there are errors in the way that you're thinking about the world. Mm. And so when there can be these positive spillover effects, it at least allows me to see the entire burden, thankfully, did not fall on Daryl, right? He inspired this cascading effect of his early efforts and led people to Mm. become their own advocates um, for anti-racist work.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I wonder when you talk about that tension, you know, of his experience and, Mm. and what a great piece of information also for us, anyone who wants to show up for a cause to understand that whomever chooses to join us can also go out and advocate on behalf of it. Mm. I know so many people will write into the show and say, I love this issue you guys talked about, or this really made me feel inspired, but what can I do as one person? And it's Mm. such a great reminder to continue coalition building because we're not supposed to do this alone. But when we think about the tension we all experience, and you know, I, I mentioned a little bit of my family's story, um, and I know you and I both share experiences in the world, and especially in corporate worlds as women. And I also know that you know your family immigrated from India, so you exist in a bit of a tension, I imagine, as a woman, as mm-hmm. the daughter of immigrants. And then I, when I think about this precious little girl, you know, taking up her violin. It's funny because as an adult, we look at um, child genius and and musicality and all of these things and we go, oh, what a great kid. But often as a kid, being really smart or having some incredible talent, um, especially when it falls, at least historically, under a band umbrella, can really make you a target, you know, for bullying. And you mentioned growing up in Connecticut. What... Was that tension present in your life, or did you have more of a, of a great community that was more idyllically welcoming of, you know, everyone's personal identities?
0: Yeah, I wish it was, but it wasn't. Mm. Um, I experienced a ton of bullying as a kid. And
2: mm.
0: when you're young, you don't know what the root cause of that bullying is. You know, um, in hindsight, I can look back and think, oh, wow, there were so few families of color in the community that I grew up in. Was did race play a role in mm. in kids being pretty ruthless with me and saying just horrible things? And but at the time, you think, no, it's just me. Like I'm X or I'm Y, and mm-hmm. I'm not like the rest, and I'm, you know, bad or this, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, I mean, I really admire my parents looking back because you know, my mom. Just a quick aside on the immigrant story. Like my mom, um, who's one of my role models. She met my dad twenty days before they got married, and then wow. she she was a she was a fifth grade teacher in India. She meets my dad on January first. They decide to get married that day. They get married twenty one days twenty days later, and she ends up moving to this country um, and leaving her entire. I mean, entire community behind. And they moved to Cambridge and they're just living in a little dorm room. And I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Namesake, but it's very reminiscent of my, my parents' immigrant story. But my mom is just forced to figure out this whole thing herself, right? Like what this immigrant experience is like. And She tells me to this day, one of the reasons why she had four kids, I'm the youngest of four, is because she was trying to build a little tribe around herself, a little army, so that she would feel less lonely in this country and feel like she had some kind of support system. But one thing that I loved, you know, we grew up in, as I mentioned, in in Connecticut, where there were so few people of color that we could bond with, just their fierce pride in being Indian. Like, Mm -hmm. I always grew up knowing that my parents were so deeply proud to be from India, and they would boldly, you know, teach us the traditions and the culture and the religion, and mm-hmm. oh my gosh, the delicious food! I I, I like cringe now because I'm like, why oh. did I want pizza when my mom was cooking delicious South Indian meals? But I'm grateful that over time, I started to feel that same sense of pride. Mm-hmm. Um, in small ways, like making sure that people say my last name correctly, which is, mm-hmm. it's not Shankar, it's Shankar. Mm-hmm. Um, and like really making that a point to big ways, which is, you know, feeling so deeply connected to my roots and my ancestry and and where I come from. So, mm. but it, but it took time. And like any kid, I was, I was so eager to assimilate and so eager to just be like all the other kids at school that I just didn't, yeah, I just didn't value it in the way that I, I wish I had. Mm. But every kid in many ways feels othered in some way or another. Like I wonder, Sophia, if you had experiences as a kid where you were just so eager to be like others or if there was oh. something that made you different or distinct and you kind of wish you had embraced it at that moment in time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is really interesting. I'll, I'll never forget <laughs> uh, talking about, you know, some of the war wounds I carry from my childhood. And I was always such a sensitive kid and that sensitivity mm-hmm. was often weaponized against me. And I think we're now having larger conversations about what it means to weaponize sensitivity and and why it's deeply toxic. And that when you are sensitive to other people's feelings, when you see a broken world and your reaction is to be heartbroken, it really does mean you're in tune. And, and yeah, gosh, I'll never forget a couple of months ago discussing, you know, some of the stuff that was really hard (laughs) um, as a kid – uh, especially dealing with a sort of, you know, classic 90s mean girls mentality mm. in my high school and really feeling sort of suspended between the, all these different worlds within that world. Um, and my coach just said, well, you got to get over it. You know, you starting to get all these roles in plays, and this happening to you and this happening to you. Yeah, kids were jealous of you. That's why they were mean to you. And the, the dissonance I felt in her kind of calling me out and being like, you got to grow up about it was really hard because I, I, my response to her was, but I, I have always felt less than. I have always felt so scared. I've always felt like I was a, you know, a step from failing. And she said, yeah, but it doesn't matter. It's not how other people perceive you. And, and the sort of difference of you know, being a kid who I always kind of felt like the odd man out There's an interesting moment I find myself in as an adult having to come to a sort of cognitive reckoning with regardless of how I feel, how do other people experience me, and how do I then hold space for both realities? Mm -hmm. And when they're very dissonant, what does that look like? And you know, similarly to you. You you might have had days where you didn't realize that, you know, being the protege of the greatest viol- the greatest living violinist might have made you a target for bullying. You felt like you were broken. And I I didn't take into account, you know, that I got a huge leadership role my senior year in high school that was deeply competitive in my community and that that made me a target. I just thought everyone hated me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it's a very, it's just so interesting the things we go through. <laughs> Yeah, you you don't you don't realize it at the time, but looking back it's always easier to to sort of see
0: the dynamics. Your comment about weaponizing sensitivity was so poignant. Mm. And it reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a black trans man named Morgan Givens. And he talks about the fact that he was assigned female at birth and then he went through hormone therapy to align his body with his true gender identity, which is male. Mm. And that after this transition, he was starting to grapple with masculinity and what that really means. And he said, you know, I'm a really sensitive guy. And sometimes I feel, you know, well, his story is very complicated in the sense that he, um, he's a Black trans man and he was confronted with the harsh reality of being a Black man in society when he was pulled over by the cops and had su- subsequent engagements with the cops. And he ended up joining the police force, which wow. in many places can be like the ultimate machismo, macho vibe, like, you know, toxic masculinity, what have you. And it was so interesting for him to say that in many ways, he had to dismantle his perception of what gender identity meant because he said, I wasn't willing to lose so much of myself. Like, Mm. I am sensitive. I am emotional. Um, And sometimes he said in, in his particular experience that, you know, being in the force, it was as though he was being told he shouldn't feel things, you mm-hmm. know, he shouldn't respond emotionally to things. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I just found that to be such a fascinating, thought-provoking conversation around mm-hmm. how we think about our identities and how multifaceted they could be and how ma- many different traits can exist within us that we mm-hmm. just learn over time to embrace.
1: I think about, I interviewed my friend um, Karamo Brown on this show last year and he was talking about how he really got ruthlessly made fun of, you know, for bringing cultural food to school. Kids would make fun of him when his mom would make curry mm-hmm. goat. And similarly to what you said, yeah. you know, when your mom's making this incredible Indian food, you're like, why did I want, you know, pizza. a gross <laughs> slice of pepperoni pizza? Why? But as a child, you just want what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to have it, you want to be it, you want it to be smooth. Um, and I'm curious... Does your deep knowledge of cognitive behavior, does it help you release some of your own childhood, you know, war wounds is the term I always use, but Mm -hmm. some of, some of that hurt. Are you able to kind of transmute, you know, your inner child who had a wound because of what you understand about the brain? Do you think it makes it easier to, you know, quote unquote, do the work?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think, when you learn more about the human mind and you learn about all the various forces that can lead us to develop the beliefs that we have. I mean, it can build empathy in one sense because you understand why, but it can also build an impatience in another sense, which is, Mm -hmm. okay, we understand why, but we also do have research showing how we can effectively change not just other people's minds, but our own. Mm. And so I think I do feel a great sense of urgency because the state of affairs when it comes to racial inequity, gender um, inequity, you name it, is, is so severe,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, I do feel like, oh my gosh, let's just get the research out there. Like, I just want everyone to understand what is involved in changing our own minds, because I really do believe mm-hmm. that we all would benefit so much, not just from focusing on how to change other people's minds, but how to change our own minds. And if we could mm-hmm. all look inwards and engage in that kind of work, society would be so much better off.
1: So when you talk about that it's funny because my immediate instinct is to say okay well what does it look like will you give us a curriculum where do we begin <laughs> like i want a full semester i want i want to take the course but and that that is true i was about to say all kidding aside i'm like i'm actually not kidding but you know that that's a that's a large thing for a lot of people to theoretically sign up for so where would you tell people to begin mm. because i know there are other people listening right now who are having that same light up experience that I am going, okay, where do we start and how do we change our minds and, and, and to what benefit? So where do you point people as, you know, a starting line for learning how to change and better their own minds?
0: Yeah, I think, um, there are two experts on change that I had on a slight change of plans this past season. And we do a deep dive on, Some of these strategies, like if your Mm -hmm. listeners want to just get like the one on one in 30 minutes, you know, Um, I talk with uh, Katie Milkman and Adam Grant, who are both professors Mm. of of psychology and Katie Milkman's book is called How We Change and Adam Grant's book is called Think Again. And I Mm -hmm. think they both articulate in this really beautiful way. Um, strategies that we can implement within our own lives to try and reach our long-term goals and become better people, as well as ways that we can revisit our opinions and our values and beliefs ever so often to make sure that we are valuing this idea of changing our minds, right? Rather than being embarrassed and feeling pride and shame and having been wrong, actually making it a pride point to change one's mind. And it's funny, I mean, I use some of these strategies in in my day-to-day life. Like my husband and I, he's a computer scientist, but he's also a behavioral scientist in part because he's married to me. (laughs) So he knows, he knows all the research, Sophia, but we know how hard it can be to change one's mind. Um, Mm -hmm. And we know how many barriers, psychological barriers there are in the way of admitting that we want to change our minds. Some of those forces are the fact that we attach our, our sense of self and our self-worth and our identity to our values. So when we admit that we're wrong about something, it can threaten our sense of self, um, mm-hmm. which can be hard. And then, you know, pride can get in the way. We just hate admitting we're wrong because there's some element of, say, embarrassment or, or shame. But because of that, we really try to incentivize one another to admit that they're wrong. So, like, when one of us says, oh, yeah, you're making me think differently about this. I think I might be wrong about that. We, like, enthusiastically pat each other on the back and are like, that's so awesome that you're willing to change your mind. Like, that's something I really value, and I value so much about you that you don't let pride get in the way and that you are willing to say and admit Mm -hmm. when you're wrong. Um, And I think even those small changes in the way that you structure, like, not to get too technical, but like incentive systems within your life yep. so that you start to value these sorts of things. I, I think that can make a huge difference. I mean, it's certainly, you know, within our our marriage, it makes a huge difference to create this really safe, not not even just a safe space for admitting we're wrong, but actually it's a pride point to admit that you're wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I, I'm curious, I can't help but think as you're talking about all of this, about the moment you and I find each other in. The global moment certainly, but but really in particular, what's happening here, where we live, mm-hmm. with such dangerous ideology around political identity, and the kinds that we're seeing in particular with um, obvious lies about science, mm-hmm. public health, really weaponized, especially on the right. You've seen. Vaccinated television hosts telling their audiences not to get vaccinated because it's a it's an identity thing, which is simply not true. But they've weaponized public health to a point where it now falls under hmm. that sort of umbrella, which you're referencing, which is if I ch- if I admit that I was wrong about this, it'll it'll dismantle my entire identity, and we're seeing unvaccinated populations largely exist by political lines and we're seeing that 99% of people currently dying of COVID are unvaccinated. And it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I'm very surprised by some of the response I get when I advocate around vaccine science. What kinds of responses do you get? People are just so they are so entrenched. And in sharing, you know, personal stories, again because I believe they create empathy. You know, a, a doctor speaking about how they've had multiple patients in the last two weeks literally dying in the ICU, begging for a vaccine. Mm. And the doctor saying, I'm so sorry, it's too late. It won't do anything for you now. And someone messaged me saying, you know, you really shouldn't guilt people like this. And I thought, ooh if, if, the, if you are feeling sad, heartbroken for these people, that isn't my trying to guilt you. That's your authentic response to unnecessary death. That's the right response. That's sensitivity. But because of an ideology, you're looking to blame that feeling on someone else. And I'm very curious how, for this issue we see, how do you think we get over this? How do you think behavioral science can teach us to encourage people past the paid nuisance that they're watching on the news, which isn't being, you know, accurately represented very often as propaganda campaigns um, from the Murdochs, but in fact is harming communities. H- how do we get people over that notion that, that that's somehow tied to their identity? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, the first, the first answer I have is we don't know the full story. Um, Mm. getting people to change their minds is one of the most intractable parts of my field. Uh, It can be easier to change people's behaviors and extremely hard to get people to change their minds. So we do have techniques we can use. um, But it is, I think if we were to ever crack that nut, it would just be a game changer. It's just we're far away. Um, So we have early ideas. We have techniques that we can use. Some of those are hard to use at scale, especially when they require one-on-one engagement. Mm. Um, But there are some, and I do want to share one burgeoning one growing body of research that I'm very excited about, and it's called moral reframing. And it refers Mm -hmm. to the fact that it's very hard for people to change their values, especially change their values overnight. And so the most effective way of convincing people of something new is to hold their values fixed, affirm their values, but change the framing of the message so that it reaches the goals that you have in mind, but it aligns with that person's value system. So, to put this in concrete terms, let's say you're trying to advocate for climate change, right? With a liberal, you might talk about the fact that investing in climate change reform can lift up the disadvantaged among us, right, and help bring about more social equality. For a conservative, you might focus on the fact that investing in climate change reform can be a nice way of preserving our natural our nation's beauty, our natural beauty, that it's patriotic to care about the environment, that investing in the environment can help inspire job growth and, mm-hmm. you know, boost the economy. So in both cases your end goal is the same, which is to try to get people to care about climate change, which is probably the most important right. one of the most important issues of our time but you're not threatening their entire value system. You're holding their value system Mm. as fixed and you're trying to find ways to frame messages in ways that affirm rather than threaten that value system. And research is showing that it can be a very powerful mechanism to get people out of their very fixed mindset and to think, oh wait, actually, believing in climate change can actually be consonant with my value system. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to breed the kind of cognitive dissonance that it would otherwise breed. And I think that's a nice antidote around the fact that we do so strongly attach our values to our, our identities. I don't think that's gonna go anywhere. I think that is such a foundational part of human nature mm-hmm. and our psychology that to try to overhaul that part of our psychology might be too much to bite, <laughs> too much to, to take on. Um, mm-hmm. But if we can work around it with these you know, framing changes, that can be a potentially powerful antidote.
1: And it is, it strikes me that it is a place where so many people, to your point about uh, whatever their value systems or or perceived identities are, can find universal truths. You know, when you talk about advocacy, um, like Daryl Davis working mm-hmm. on dismantling white supremacy, we would we would typically, place that into the more sort of left bucket on the political spectrum. But then you also did so much work, actually, uh, with the White House Social and Behavioral Sciences team on veterans issues, mm-hmm. which so many people, I would imagine anyway, would, would place in a more, quote, right political bucket, even though folks who make up veterans and, you know, service members and and people who work, you know, all the way up to the White House, are of every kind of ideology and belief system. And I wonder about how, when we get beyond those perhaps obvious or assumed ideologies, and then we get into things like um, what you spoke about with Morgan undoing notions of masculinity, there's so much, you know, masculinity and aggressiveness tied up in the notion of military. How Did you, well, first, how did you end up in that position? Because I'm fascinated how you (laughs) go from, you know, playing the violin at Juilliard to Yale to being a Rhodes Scholar to winding up at the White House. I'm wondering then how, as the woman that you are, do you approach such deeply entrenched notions of identity and masculinity and, and toughness working on veterans issues, which mean you are serving and helping people who have largely... Believed that they don't—they don't need anybody's help.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the White House job um, definitely again was not on my path. I didn't expect <laughs> it. Um, so at the time, Sophie, I was—I was doing my postdoc. So I just finished my PhD in England, came to mm-hmm. California to do my postdoc. It was in cognitive neuroscience. And I just distinctly remember I was in the basement of a fMRI laboratory. So basically just doing brain scans, trying to see how people's brains work. And it was probably my fourth hour of doing these scans. I was in a windowless basement and this guy comes in for his brain scan. And within moments, I'm peering into his brain on this screen. And I remember thinking... Given my personality, I feel like the order of operations is off here. Like, I'm a really Mm. social person. I don't know anything about this guy. I don't know whether he has kids, what his favorite ice cream flavor is, what motivates him in life. So the really science, technical stuff might be for some people, but it wasn't for me. And I kind of knew in that moment, okay, I need to be in a more social environment where I'm getting to know people and working on teams and whatnot. But I had no idea what could come next. I, like, what does a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience do other than become a professor or a researcher? (laughs) So I was really lost. And I called up my old undergraduate advisor. And she told me, Maya, there's some amazing work happening in the federal government right now where they're using insights from our field to get more lunches to kids who can't afford lunch at school every day. So basically what was happening was the government was offering... Um, a school lunch program at a free or reduced price uh, for for low-income kids. But millions of kids were still going hungry every single day at school, despite the fact this program was offered. Mm. And so they did a behavioral audit of the program, and they found out that there are at least two factors behind this. The first is that the form was extremely burdensome to fill out. It required referencing multiple tax documents, finding a way to get this form back to the government at a very specific moment in time, And if there were, if you filled out the information incorrectly, there would be penalties. And think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine a single mom who's working three, you know, three jobs to make ends meet and you're demanding this of her. Um, And -hmm. it can be really challenging to make sure that everything gets done in time and, and is filled out correctly. So that was one barrier was just how burdensome the form was. And the other barrier was that parents felt a lot of stigma around enrolling their kids into a public Mm -hmm. benefits program. Like when I was in the White House, I talked to principals who would say, these parents work really hard for a living. And the idea of having their kids depend on the government was was really demoralizing for families. Mm -hmm. So they didn't want to do that. So what the government did is that they changed the program from an opt-in program to an opt-out program such that, all eligible kids were now automatically enrolled in the program. And mm. parents would only need to take an active step if they wanted to unenroll their kids in the program. And we know that this default setting can play a massive role in other policy areas, like when you automatically enroll employees into retirement savings plans, right? Like yeah. rates skyrocket from, let's say, 40 percent to 95 percent. Um, so it's so beautiful and elegant to see this used in the area of Children's health and well-being mm-hmm. and their ability to prosper in school. And as a result of this change, 12 and a half million more kids are now eating lunch at school every day. That's amazing. So I remember thinking, that's what I want to be doing. I want to be helping to translate insights from my field into public policy improvements. Mm-hmm. But there was no job out there. So I ended up sending a cold email to a former Obama advisor, Cass Sunstein, and He had written books on the topic. He'd written this book, Nudge, which I'd also recommend to readers if they want to acquaint themselves with behavioral science. He had worked for Obama. And he connected me with the president's science advisor. And a few days later, I was interviewing for this new job um, and trying to convince them to hire a dedicated behavioral scientist to work in the White House.
1: It's fascinating because... The differences that are possible with just shifts in, to your point, how we file paperwork or how we ask questions or how we explain things. I, I, um, I had the privilege, the honor really, of, of testifying before Congress a few weeks ago. And I was listening to an economic expert analyzing the incentives around overcoming vaccine hesitancy. And mm. one of the things they've found the most effective is to remind people, not that they can get a shot but that there is a shot reserved for each and every one of us. Yeah. It's waiting for you. It's yeah. yours. Has has been such an empowering piece of information for people to mm-hmm. understand, oh, oh right. We do have the immense privilege of living in a country that has provided enough vaccines for each and every one of us. Yeah. There is a vaccine waiting for me, for you.
0: And, I love and it. it's yeah.
1: It's a it's a, it's a mental shift, you know, it's it's a linguistic shift, but it it does create a sense of empowerment in, you know, an everyday person trying to protect themselves.
0: Yeah, I love this research. It's actually done by my friend Katie Milkman, who I was mentioning (laughs) earlier. It's incredible research, and it aligns very closely with a study that we ran in government involving veterans. So we were trying to get them to sign up for an employment and educational counseling program upon returning from their years overseas. And the reason this why is this is what
1: you were doing at the White House, At right? the White House,
0: exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just want to
1: get my timeline right. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> so, so it's so important to help facilitate the transition from military to civilian life, because it, yeah. it can be one that is fraught with lots of challenges and folks might be dealing with PTSD. Like, the, the, mm-hmm. the military experience is so profoundly hard, and it's important mm-hmm. that we as a society protect and support um, veterans as they mm-hmm. transition back to civilian life. So again, this is an example of people not taking advantage of this program in large part because I think as government, we were not doing a good enough job marketing the program and getting it out to folks. So I remember we were working with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Our budget was limited. They told us, you can only work with this one email that we're gonna be setting out to vets about the program. And to your point, you know, then what, what, are, mm-hmm. what is the space we're working in? Linguistics, mm-hmm. right? It's all about framing mm-hmm. the message. And we changed just one word in the message, Sophia. So instead of telling vets that they were eligible for the program, we simply reminded them that they had earned it through their years of service. So Mm -hmm. if you think about the vaccine study, right, there's a vaccine reserved for you. It's like, hey, veterans, there's this educational employment benefit that's reserved for you. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really tapping into the same psychology, which um, is called the endowment effect. That's the principle. And it refers to the fact that we value things more when we own them or have earned them. Because now mm. we have something to lose, right? It's something that we, we own. It's, it's in our possession and, and we don't want to mm. um, forego the opportunity of taking advantage of it. And so that one word change led to a 9% increase in access to the veterans program, which wow. was an incredible example of how even just small tweaks in the way that we frame something can have really outsized impacts on behavior.
1: That is so, so very cool. So working on that, with the Department of Veterans Affairs and and under the White House. Was there a a shift in your ability to do that work when the administration changed? I I've heard so much about great programs that were underway. I mean, even a, a national organ database for organ donation mm-hmm. and, and transplants that that was derailed, you know, in twenty sixteen. And I'm curious what what's become of this wonderful veterans program.
0: Yeah, so I was fortunate in that I had a boss who had worked for Clinton for eight years, left for Bush, and then come back for Obama. And mm-hmm. what he shared with me is that they had done so much work in the Clinton administration, and the metaphor he used was that it was as though they built this elaborate sandcastle at the beach, and then one wave came, and, like, the whole thing crashed over, crashed. Um.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And his lesson from that experience to me was, when you're building out things like a behavioral science team, don't build them in the White House, build them in parts of the government that are resistant to political leadership changes, that are resistant Mm. to partisan preferences, but that can exist just as a stable part of doing good government. Mm. Um, And so this led me to actually create the team in a very bipartisan uh, part of government, called the General Services Administration. And it's pretty insensitive to the whims of the White House, right? They just continue Mm -hmm. to do solid work to help improve the experience of student loan borrowers and formerly, uh, you know, people who have formerly been in prison who are leaving or veterans or military service members or low-income students or women who have just gone through pregnancy, whatever it is, whatever the population, this group, dedicates themselves to just improving good government practice. And so Mm. the White House part of the team, I disbanded when I left. Um, But the part, the the real heart of the team was based in this agency. And they continued to do incredible work during the previous administration, like helping on the opioid epidemic, helping on wildfire relief, areas that all Americans can get behind, you Mm -hmm. know? And that was a great lesson to me that, at the end of the day, I mean, I've always seen behavioral science as being a very nonpartisan thing, right? It's just about mm-hmm. how do we make sure that our policies and programs reflect our best understanding of human behavior? Mm-hmm. And it was so critical that we make sure that this part of government fell in a place where you can't challenge the importance of making sure that when we're building out a program or a policy policy, we need to take that population we're serving into consideration to make sure that it is really reaching its goals and maximizing the positive impact it has on the population it's it's seeking to serve.
2: That's
1: so great. And that's what I think we should hope for in general. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not supposed to be playing this eye-for-an-eye partisan game at Mm -hmm. the upper echelons of our government, really anywhere in our government. But, you know, the notion that... um, the twenty sixteen administration was just nuking incredible government programs to kind of get back yeah. at the at you know terrible. at President Obama was so hard to watch. And and I think hope my hope for us is that we can also, regardless of you know, where we come from or what we might believe or what our ideologies are, understand the danger of that. I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that Trump disbanded the pandemic response network mm-hmm. as a what? As a gotcha. And and look at what happened. You know, it's a a frightening time. And what strikes me in the beauty of what you all did in establishing this program and making it able to withstand any kind of sea change is that that, I believe, could actually help with our behavioral identities and our social identities Mm -hmm. if we could really rest confidently in the truth that there are these departments in our government that are taking care of us no matter what, I think we could actually um, calm some of the mania down, which would be beautiful. And and so it makes me curious how you think in that theme, behavioral science and social science can play into issues like public programs and and really even into the economy.
0: You know, I think- it can be so tragic when the government builds out a policy or a program, and it is so well designed. It's such a useful program. Like, for example, mm. with the school lunch program, right? The meals were nutritious. They were being offered at school. They were available. But then we don't get that last mile problem correct, right? We mm. we forget that there are barriers to accessing the program that are really, that can have profound implications on participation rates, or that there's a certain psychology held by the person or people that we're trying to um, have take Mm. advantage of the program. And when we miss that part, it can mean that all of our efforts up until that point were for naught. Because we're just not getting over that finish line of making sure that the program's eligibility, or the requirements for enrolling, Mm -hmm. or what have you, or the way the choices are structured, or the way that incentives are structured, aligns with the science of human behavior and what Mm -hmm. motivates us and what drives us and what can serve as an antagonist for us. And so I just think considering the full range of psychological factors that might be at play when someone is thinking about engaging with the government in a certain way is such a crucial Mm -hmm. piece of the puzzle.
1: Mm. I love that. Was was that understanding uh, what led you to work with Pete Buttigieg on his uh debate prep team. I'm I'm so curious how did you get that call? Do you think that was a
0: I made that call. You made <laughs> so that, call? that call. Oh my gosh. I am am the queen of I'm the queen of the cold email. You love a cold call. Just I like, love this. It's very yeah. bold. Uh so I should probably also mention that when I was a young kid so I mentioned how I auditioned for Juilliard I should just give you a quick backstory on how that happened because it's very relevant to the approach I've used since Um, (laughs) so my parents had no exposure to the classical music world Um, my dad's a theoretical physicist my mom helps immigrants get green cards to study in this country so when I developed a huge love of the violin um, they didn't know what to do like they had no exposure to western classical music so my mom knew that my dreams were really big she knew that I aspired to audition for Juilliard but we had no connections with that world so one day we are in New York, just mother-daughter trip. We are walking by the Juilliard building, and my mom goes, Why don't we just go in and see what happens? I was like, What do you mean, just go in? That's crazy. She's like, Let's just go in and see what happens. You've got your violin with you. You know, maybe we can find something out of this experience. So wow. We walk into the Juilliard building, unannounced, uninvited. My mom strikes up a conversation with a woman in the elevator and her daughter and says, hey, when you guys are done with your lesson with this teacher, would you mind if Maya just played for that teacher for just a few minutes? Would you be willing to just make an introduction? And they said yes. And it was a lesson to me that sometimes when you just ask, you'll get a yes in return. And so they made the intro. I auditioned for this teacher. He took me on as a summer student. And it is only because of that summer boot camp that I experienced that I even had a chance of getting into Juilliard in the fall. So she taught me like... You know, in this case, it wasn't even, it wasn't a cold call. It was like a cold, you know, walk into the building. (laughs) And so I've been using that ever since. So I, as you know, I cold emailed a former White House official to try to get the Obama gig. And then with Pete, I just sent him an email and I was like, hey, you know, I worked in the Obama White House. One thing I've learned is that it's important to make sure behavioral science informs policy and programs. But what's Mm. extra important is making sure that behavioral science informs how we tell stories around mm-hmm. policy and politics, and mm. that we use it to inform the narratives that we build, the way that we communicate about public policy goals, because so much can get lost in translation. Um, and at the end of the day, language is the inspirational tool that we have to get people excited about policy reform and yes. to help bridge divides. So I remember when I emailed him asking to, you know, volunteer to help his campaign, it wasn't on policy that I was eager to help, even though that was where I'd been coming from in the Obama White House. It was to help on messaging, uh, Mm -hmm. to make sure that the right stories were getting in the hands of voters, to make sure that we were framing our policy objectives in ways that aligned, hopefully, with people's long-term goals for themselves and their families. And so, yeah, I just sent him an email and was like, hey, um, would you be interested (laughs) in working with me? And he wrote back and said, yeah. And I ended up Being a part of his debate preparation team. So I flew all over the country and helped him prepare for every single debate leading up to his win in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And it was an incredible experience to learn from the other many former Obama debate coach veterans on the team. So I just felt like I was a student, you know, watching the greats, (laughs) you know, do this coaching and like I was in this masterclass. But it was an incredibly illuminating experience to have that behind the scenes look at how a candidate builds themselves over time. I'd never worked on a campaign before, and I just learned, yeah, I learned so much from from the experience.
1: Mm. Do you think there are strategies that we as voters might be able to learn from the folks who are out there campaigning? Things we should look for, things we should listen for, how we can really listen for the things that are most important? Because it's easy to get swayed by a slogan or we've seen to to drum up tension. But as we both discussed earlier, climate, for example, should be our number one priority. If we don't have mm-hmm. a planet to live on, none of the other stuff we argue about is ever going to matter. Yeah. So how can we, as the voting body, better engage with the messaging
0: we're hearing? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think the responsibility should fall on voters. I put the responsibility mm-hmm. entirely on the people who are running for office to build Mm. a really compelling argument for why it is that they're running for the position Mm. and what they can offer. Like Elizabeth Warren was on point (laughs) regarding her argument for why she was running uh, for office. And I think it's up to, (laughs) it's up to the politician to take very complex policies that don't have, you know, it's not, it's not easy to unpack decisions around pipelines and whatnot, you know, in in a few sentences. But I think Mm. it is the job of the politician to distill really complex concepts into uh, language that feels accessible and relatable and relevant to our day-to-day lives um, so that voters feel the pull to go to the ballot box and and cast their votes. So, I think that is, yeah, I think that is the responsibility of the politician to Mm -hmm. make sure that politics feels like it is a part of our everyday lives and it has consequences. And to make sure that we understand topics that are otherwise extremely complex. Like I was behind the scenes and I was like having to brief myself like, wait a second, what exactly are the implications of this policy? Mm -hmm. This is way more complex than I ever thought. Um, So I think that burden falls on, again, the politicians. But I will say one thing, which is working in the Obama White House gave me an appreciation for just how complex any given policy is, mm-hmm. and that it is no decision is easy, right? It's fair. I think it's easy for us to hear the top line messaging and be like, Obama, of course, it should have been X or Y, but Obama's considering the hundreds of, you know, spillover effects a policy mm-hmm. change might have or the long term consequences versus the short term consequences mm-hmm. and how different countries will respond to this change or how different communities will be disproportionately affected by a change. And I think it is yeah. so. I think if there was one thing that I would want voters to better appreciate is like that level of complexity and that mm. we can be screaming from our living rooms, like, of course, you should be doing X or Y. But <laughs> typically the story is more complicated if you just pull back the curtain a little bit. Indeed. It helped me build empathy <laughs> towards all the politicians that, you know, I've liked or not liked or just, you know, allowing me to see the complexity behind their story.
1: Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, that's that's exactly what we all need. Did your kind of ability to, as you said, be on the inside, you know, both of the human brain and your behavioral science expertise, but also in terms of, you know, upper echelons of government policy, is that what led you to create your podcast? Because I feel like perhaps (laughs) it was the same instinct for me, which is I want to give these conversations I'm so lucky to be part of to everyone who wants to hear them.
0: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. I think this podcast in many ways emerged from my humility as a scientist and, Mm. What I learned from my experience in government is that a lot of the answers around how we should navigate big change in our lives doesn't lie mm-hmm. in a textbook. I want it to be in a textbook. I want to be able to open up my textbook <laughs> to page 90 and be like, oh, I'm going through this big change. Or as a country or as this globe, we're going through this big change. How do we get, how do we navigate it? And you just like flip to the page and you learn the lessons. but. My experience in the White House taught me the power of storytelling and how important it is to listen to people's stories, their life stories, their perspectives on change, their perspectives on their lives, because it can fill in gaps in our understanding of how it is that we can better support people. So I'll give you one concrete example. When I was at the White House, I worked with Flint, Michigan during the lead well, and water crisis is ongoing. But our goal was to distill um safe water practices within the community. And it was only when I visited and actually met folks on the ground in Flint that I realized the depths of this problem. Mm
2: -hmm. It's not a
0: water problem. Water was a symptom of a much deeper problem that was resulting from decades of disenfranchisement, systemic racism, people of color in the community not feeling like they had a voice in their government and the decisions that were made by their government. Mm -hmm. And so to try to just solve for the water crisis was missing the underlying cause (laughs) and and the breach of trust that had happened between residents of Flint and their government. And so seeing that firsthand and hearing people's stories, I mean, it just gave me a much more nuanced, rounder, fuller understanding Mm -hmm. of what was at play. And so I've always felt like we have so much to learn from people's stories and my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, in many ways, is my attempt at marrying the science with storytelling, you know? Yes. So I bring science to the table. We learn about the science of change. We learn about the science of um, changing people's minds. But then you hear a story from someone like Daryl Davis, the black jazz musician who actually convinced people to leave the Klan. Mm-hmm. Or I talked to Hillary Clinton about her decision to change her last name back in the day in Arkansas because of all the pressure she faced
2: mm-hmm. since she yeah. wasn't
0: fulfilling the cookie-cutter role that a first lady of Arkansas ought to fulfill. Oh or I talked to Tiffany Haddish about navigating the foster system and an abusive mother and discovering mm. her superpower, you know, navigating, or role well, her superpower, which is to make people laugh and how she used that superpower to navigate danger and get herself what she wanted over the course of her life. And I feel like mm. when you hear people's stories, that's how you can learn some of the best lessons, you know, like you can mine mm-hmm. people's stories for insights and fresh ways of thinking about change that you might never Mm -hmm. have thought of otherwise. And I, you know, to that point about having this fundamental humility around how much we understand about the science of change, like I've learned so much from my guest, Sophia, about how to think differently about change in my own life. And that is such a gift, such a blessing for me to leave every conversation being like, huh, maybe I should think about this thing differently. Or just last (laughs) night I was reflecting on a conversation I had with a person who's in the throes of stage four bone cancer. And I was just telling my husband, you know, I struggle with X, Y, Z, but then I think about Scott's story. And, you know, one of the lessons he taught me was that maybe my sense of identity is more, quote, negotiable than I thought. Like maybe the things that I thought were so core to who I am aren't Mm. actually that core to who I am. And he's Mm. saying this as he's in the middle, he's a self-proclaimed health nut in the middle of getting you know, a leg amputated and a part of his spine removed and 18 administrations of chemotherapy. And he's telling me how he's revisiting his sense of self. And so I'm going back into my own life thinking, oh, wow, I should revisit my sense of self. Like if Scott can do it, anyone can, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's just been such a blessing to get to learn about change and how to think about change through people's narratives.
1: Mm, That's beautiful. And one of the things I find myself most inspired by is when people choose to expand the amount of space they hold for new information and for new experiences both in the world and in in themselves mm. so that makes me feel really giddy and excited
0: <laughs> and, yeah, and I'm i love curious, that it's beautifully said
1: my favorite thing to ask everyone and and i wonder if that might be your answer is what in your life at this moment feels like a work in progress
0: yeah uh it's related to my answer for sure I think the works of progress for me is, you know, as a scientist, it's so seductive to feel like there could be a one-size-fits-all answer for people. Mm. And I think in making this podcast, I'm realizing how tailor-made advice needs to be when it comes to the topic of change and how we navigate change in our lives, because Mm -hmm. the way that we interact with the change can be so idiosyncratic. And so one thing I've had to be satisfied with is if I just leave every conversation... And listeners leave every conversation thinking new thoughts about even one idea within the change domain. That's a success. Mm -hmm. There's not, you're not going to get the how-to guide on change from this podcast. And that's kind of the point which is every person will take something different from any given person's story. You know, you might hear the Hillary Clinton interview and think one thing. I might hear the Hillary Clinton interview and think something completely different. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's part of the magic of what it means to be human, which is that we take in all this information and ultimately do need to figure out how to tailor it to ourselves, given our best understanding of who we are.
1: Yeah. I love that. The ability to always add change be flexible that that to me feels like the kind of behavior we all need to really lean into so i i appreciate that answer very much and i thank you so much for joining me today
0: of course it was such a pleasure to chat with you sophia thank you for your time